a book he has co-authored, uh, Gay L.A. Uh, welcome, Stuart. Good morning, Dan. Oh, great. Uh, on this cold morning. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, you've, uh, you have co-authored with Lillian Faderman uh, this uh, history of Los Angeles. That's right. And, and you were earlier on our show uh, one time talking about uh, Harry Hay. Yep. which was another book, uh, the, um, the Trouble with Harry. Uh, yes, I wrote that biography, The Trouble with Harry Hay, back in 1990. Oh, 1990. Yeah, yeah. wow. And, uh, <laughs> and what is the difference between the two, working on these two books? How, how is it different? Well, the biography of Harry Hay was the, the story of one individual who lived through most of the 20th century. Uh, he was born in 1912 and died uh, in 2003. Um, and was very much at the center of a lot of radical activity and gay activity. Uh, he was a leftist and Communist Party member in, in uh, L.A. in the 1940s. Uh, let, me, let me give a station ID. Uh, this is KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Thank you. Sure. Uh, but... His story was really uh, just through one lens, and this story was a, uh, a very sweeping story that spans more than 125 years. Uh, we really pick up the gay trail in about 1880 and take it all the way up to 2005, so it spans a, a considerably uh, larger sweep of time, and it's also probably the first a completely co-gender history. Uh, the book is uh, was co-written, and it's uh, divided between the women's stories and the men's stories. So the uh, uh, idea of a, uh, the lesbian point of view uh, not needing to come in in another book <laughs> because it's been left out is, uh, is a real special feature of Gay LA. For sure. Uh, she's a historian, Lyndon Fabedeman, and, uh, and you... Uh a freelance journalist, I guess I'll call. Would that be? Oh, and you've done popular histories and gay well, histories. Well, I, I call myself a historian as well. Also, okay. Uh, and um, uh, we were lucky to uh, have a similar vision. And Lillian has been a very successful writer in academia. She's you know, really the difference is she's an academic. Right, and right. I'm a community historian. I have a BA. UCLA, but uh, uh, not any advance uh, further study. Although uh, Dr. Faderman is an English professor. Yes, and, that's uh, true. And, <laughs> and comes to history, uh, lesbian history, through her own uh, personal identity and concern over the, the lack of a record often uh, on the subject. And, and the same with me. And both of us were really motivated to do this book individually. And then we sort of found one another uh, because... Los Angeles, uh, we always felt, as many people who live in Southern California felt, L.A. was ahead of the curve, and, and so much had started here, and it never got proper credit. Uh, it was always the popular imagination was that San Francisco and New York were the two sort of gay meccas where everything gay started and took off and, and <laughs> sometimes ended, uh, and, and L.A. was really left out. It was this odd kind of... Uh, uh, big presence in the room that wasn't really acknowledged, so we acknowledged it. it um, you also looked at, uh, did a lot of uh, research in archives. 
I believe. Yes, it was uh, a very um, fascinating and really quite uh, exhaustive and exhausting process. Uh, we each interviewed uh, as many live witnesses as we could. Uh, mm. Both both of us interviewed about 150 people, uh, her mostly women and me mostly men. Some of the things we did together, sometimes we would... We would interview someone of the opposite gender because, you know, we had an opportunity. But uh, mm. we did really plunge into as much as we could archivally. Of course, there are two incredible gay and lesbian archives in Los Angeles. The June Mazer Archive is uh, a lesbian collection that's uh, housed in West Hollywood, run by a collective of and the one uh, National Gay and Lesbian Archives, which I've been involved with as a board member and for a while as a, an executive director, uh, also has uh, just a fantastic and, and enormous uh, historical collection. But we found that there was an awful lot that simply wasn't there that you could find in other places. And it was often a big challenge uh, getting to the material. There were some obstacles we had to overcome. They weren't uh, processed? Uh, not completely just that. In some cases, there was uh, a touch of uh, homophobia uh, at, at one uh, place that will go unnamed. It's a major center for uh, uh, historical artifacts in Southern California. Uh, I mentioned what I was doing to the archivist, and he looked at me and said, oh, we wouldn't have any material like that. Mm. And the idea that they don't have a, a gay collection uh, that's been distinguished and, and inventoried with something about homosexuality in it is, some, is, is, the, is the attitude of many people, that you want gay stuff, you go to a gay collection, but often gay material is found only in a, a broader collection. And mm -hmm. in this case, they had the um, records, the register for uh, everyone who was incarcerated in the L.A. city jail in the, I think it was the 1880s and 90s and the aughts and the teens. This is a long period. And the crime for which they were arrested so there were uh, a few arrests for the so-called crime against nature, which meant, uh, you know, uh, gay male sex, and um, uh, lewd and lascivious conduct, which is another term for, for uh, gay male sex, or even for gay male cruising sometimes you could be picked up for what was called lewd vagrancy. So that those kinds of materials were there. There was also... Uh, I, once I found those names there at that one place, I went to the L.A. Hall of Records mm. uh, to look at the um, uh, case files because the Hall of Records is supposed to have all of this stuff recorded from from any trial, which would have been a, a public uh, matter. And the uh, uh, people uh, running it said that I uh, the law prevented me from looking at any criminal uh, cases, even if they were 100 years old. And I ultimately had to go to a judge, get a court order, and, you know, it took months. It took about four months. But once I did, there was a, a gold mine. I found just incredible pretrial transcripts and uh, all kinds of material uh, talking exactly about how gay men were 
entrapped going back into the 19th century and uh, the uh, terrible, terrible uh, uh, homophobia and uh, injustice uh, that, that was hard to imagine just because people were homosexual. Hey, um, I'm a bit surprised because I thought they don't keep transcripts or they don't do transcripts on this as an appeal. Well, in this case, there was one, and this may have, some of these are so early mm. that uh, this may have been before those rules were set. There were some pretrial transcripts I found for a case in 1888 in which um, two guys were arrested at a boarding house where they were literally spied on. There was a peephole in the wall, <laughs> and the woman who rented them the room looked in through the peephole and then called the policeman to look in through it. Um, and and then they were arrested. But the uh, well, what you're saying is uh, is true. There are the largest amount of transcripts and full trial materials are retained up at the uh, state archives in Sacramento. And I went up there and and also looked at those and, and got a lot of uh, other really amazing information. Was there any uh, racial breakdown of the victims in these cases? Well, it's a really interesting question. Uh, there's a high percentage of people that I found men, which is what I was looking at. There's very, very little, really almost no record of any lesbian sex uh, arrests. But among men, there's a high percentage of people of color. I didn't try to quantify it. Mm. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I did a lot of uh, surveying of the uh, L.A. Times, where you can do now uh, keyword searches to try huh. to, to get a good sampling. Uh, for crime against nature, unspeakable acts, uh, sodomy, all this kind of stuff. Uh, there were a number of men who were uh, uh, mixed race, uh, black and uh, Caucasian, uh, um, Mexicans, uh, coming from the time when Los Angeles had been part of Mexico, and, and there was always a, always a, you know, originally nothing but a Latino population here. Uh, there were also uh, uh, quite a few records of uh, Chinese men from the Chinese community, the, the so-called Celestials. And I, I believe that they got into uh, the papers in the court system because they were under the gun anyway, that law enforcement was always looking for a chance to uh, make trouble for people of color who stepped out of line. And... Uh, uh, this is only speculation, but it's the only thing that can explain the uh, what seemed to be uh, almost a disproportionate number of uh, men of color who were arrested for uh, gay sex uh, encounters. Does, um, did you uh, find any, uh, what was the earliest record you found of a trial involving uh, homosexual? Uh, a trial, I, I read a reference to something, uh, I think it was 18. I didn't find the actual record. Wow. Um, and that was when Los Angeles was still in Mexico. Uh, L.A. had once been described as the most beautiful city in Mexico. <laughs> and uh, uh, But by the 1880s, certainly, you began to really find uh, a lot of the, these trials. And one I found the most uh, detailed uh, and lengthy transcript of was from 1888. And when it was in Mexico, was it still under U.S. Uh, no, American we, jurisdiction? No. U.S. jurisdiction occurred in 1850, when uh, right after the gold rush, and there was 
that immediate, you know, land grab for the the golden state because of the gold. So, oh. uh, you know, under under uh, Spanish and Mexican law, it was very very uh, anti-gay, uh, very punitive. Um, uh, in, in this case, uh, in uh, around 1845, uh, the guy was hanged for having been caught uh, in a gay act. I should mention because it's really important, also in terms of the, uh, you know, the true history of LA and the the history that's uh, you know beyond the white history that, that's uh, so recent, right. uh, and so much else has been obliterated. The, the people who lived here in Southern California originally, the Native Americans, whose 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 actual name has been lost because they were so oppressed, they're known as the Gabrielino Indians, and they've taken the name Tongva, but. Uh, no one really knows their real uh, tribal name. Um, they had uh, a, a couple of surviving words in a uh, word list put together by Smithsonian at the turn of the century for um, kind of the two-spirit uh, men and the two-spirit women. So they did live in, in those, there were those roles, uh, a positive same-sex uh, uh, traditional role. Uh, in the local Native Americans, uh, among many other Southern California Native Americans like the Mojave, there was a big paper written in the 1930s that talked at great length about a kind of, uh, of acceptance of uh, homosexuality, and often tied in with a, a social role. Uh, you know, for example, gay people in uh, Many tribes uh, dealt with uh, funeral arrangements, dealt with embalming, dealt with sorting out the possessions of the departed. It was a really important social role. Um, so that happened, and one could definitely say that the most uh, sexual freedom and personal freedom for gay people uh, existed in the original uh, among the original inhabitants of, of the area and was um, uh, not replaced until, uh, you know, um, really more than 100 years after uh, the, uh, the, the American uh, state. But, the, you know, the Europeans had been here since um, the 1500s. Mm. So there were, there were the, the, the West Coast Indians and their uh, gay-related social roles were oppressed and wiped out for longer than almost any other... Uh, Did, uh, did you find that um, the police uh, harassment of gays, was it um, independent of who the police chief was? Uh, I mean, why, wh what was the reason that they kept it up? Yes, it was independent of who the chief was. The uh, concept of uh, uh, keeping gay people constantly on the run and literally under the gun mm. was gone on for as, as long as you can find a trace of, of organized authority. Uh, you know, in, in some of those early turn-of-the-century police reports, uh, they, they would refer to uh, men caught with men as hard characters and brute beasts and all these you know, really uh, rough turn-of-the-century terms. But by the 30s and 40s, and certainly it seemed to be at its worst in the 1950s, also because the idea of uh, common discussion of, of uh, gay life was 
much more widespread, and uh, that had been kind of um, kind of special knowledge for the sophisticated before that. So you could get away with more before the mid-century. But there was a, uh, a uh, an absolute uh, across-the-board oppression, and uh, it seemed to grow stronger. We mentioned in the book, and many uh, of the uh, older gay men I'd known who were alive in the mid-century, who I'd interviewed uh, years ago for the Harry Hay book, uh, all said, and there is some evidence on the record, that the arrests around public parks and um, so on, where gay men would rendezvous at, you know, late at night when no one else was there, those would all happen around election time. Mm. And the idea of being able to show that one could clean up vice and one could get a bunch of easy arrests, uh, made politicians and the police who worked for them feel like they got a, you know, what they call in college a Mickey Mouse course. You know, it was very little yeah. effort for uh, a, a big yeah. A on your report card. And the other thing that, that needs to be said is that the term vice was a large umbrella term that had historically meant prostitution, uh, even sexual slavery, um, uh, bootlegging during prohibition, gambling, uh, you know, all, all kinds of activities that were uh, associated with illegal pleasures. And uh, the gay male sexuality, in my opinion, and I think it's a fair historical conclusion, I'm sure in many, many towns other than L.A., gay male arrests were able to be called vice arrest. It would give the public a misleading signal that the police were cracking down on prostitution and, and whatever else, when in reality they weren't, and they were often being paid off mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, by, uh, you know, uh, speakeasy owners, bar owners, uh, uh, madams at prostitution houses, uh, LAPD was notorious for, you know, shaking down prostitution for sex, all this stuff. So gay men were tended to be the most compliant. They were so uh, terrified of arrest because they knew that a, uh, a conviction would result in, a, in a, a black mark that would ruin their careers, that uh, they usually went along quietly and uh, almost always plea bargains. No one ever fought. So there wasn't much impetus to reform the law caused an outcry against these kinds of police uh, abuses and, uh, and law abuses until about the 1970s. Uh, did you look at any FBI files? Uh, no. We, we covered such a huge amount of territory, and we wrote the book during a fairly compressed two-year period. Mm. Uh, we just stayed with local records. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when, do you see the, a change in the in the way the media has covered uh, gay issues? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's remarkable. The media was across the board so homophobic uh, in the, uh, really up through the gay liberation period of the early 70s, and right around that time, there seemed to be this quantum shift, it would be, Interesting. Um, you know, you, you can't you can't do all the interviews you would have liked to have done, and we only had you know four hundred and something pages, which 
we worried would be pressing uh, <laughs> the patients or readers too much anyway. <laughs> but there were suddenly uh, articles in the uh, L.A. Times that started uh, talking about the problems of uh, homosexuals and the new gay services center that was serving the interests of, of uh, gay and lesbian people. There was something like a three-part series on the problems of lesbians in mm. the L.A. Times around 1971. It was just remarkable. And you contrast this to an editorial I found in the L.A. Times from the mid-40s, which said that of all his outrages, the one thing that uh, uh, Mr. Hitler had done right was his oppression of uh, sex perverts. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's just remarkable. So, uh, yeah, there was, there was really a, a shift from uh, a very self-righteous across-the-board homophobia to, uh, by the 70s and onward, this growing willingness to, at first, at least talk about the issue, and then eventually to run, you know, op-eds like gay people, to have openly gay staff people on staff at uh, various news outlets. Uh, it, it was a complete turnaround. And the, do you think the... Well, I mean, how did the L.A. Times change around? Because today they consider the liberal paper. Yes. Um, well, you know, there are many of these stories that are internal studies that would take an additional year or six months to, to tease out and really understand why. But in terms of the, <coughs> pardon me, the modern movement within uh, journalism and the reform around these gay issues, you know, I, I think it's it's driven by two things, mm. uh, and this is this is I, I think it I can I call it informed speculation. One is that this was a legitimate news story, and there's always a um, uh, a drive for that. And uh, uh, this came out of the 1960s when there had been riots in Los Angeles in 1965 in Watts and. Mm and loss of life and a complete disruption of the city's self-image uh, of, its, of itself, that it was this serene little paradise. Uh, so there was a real worry that uh, if there wasn't a more fair establishment approach to things, and then there had also been, yeah, around 66, there had been huge uh, marches of uh, just kind of scenes of kids hanging out on Sunset Strip of, of all races, uh, but there, there got to be such thick crowds that they actually uh, shut down. They called a curfew, and they, they cleared out this wild youth scene on Sunset Strip. So the city had been going through upheavals, and they needed to at least cover the issues of these emerging communities. Uh, the other, to, to help kind of keep a lid on things and to keep a balance on things and to keep persimmon from building up, uh, the other factor is that sex sells, as the saying goes, and homosexuality is a sex story. And, you know, the, the three-part series on lesbians, I'm sure, got nothing but encouragement from straight male editors at the time who had a little bit of titillation, although they had a woman write it, and it was, you know, a very innocuous piece. But just the idea of the word lesbian in a headline would um, would have that double uh, 
uh, kind of motivation for the Times to print it and for a lot of people to read it. And, and uh, you know, I, I really believe that's a part of, uh, of why um, uh, th that turnaround happened at uh, places like the LA Times. Um, you're listening to Subversity here on KCI uh, 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Um, we're talking with uh, Stuart Timmons, who is the co-author of a book called Gay L.A. Uh, what was the most uh, revealing thing you found in your own research for this book that you, you consider the most uh, surprising thing, maybe? Well, um, well there's a, a, a story we turned up. Um, it had been mentioned in one previous book on sexuality in general. Um, but uh, the, we, we, we found this to be an absolutely amazing kind of uh, focal point. A 1914 scandal in, uh, centered in Long Beach uh, in which uh, 31 men were arrested for uh, uh, being accused of oral sex um, and uh, at local uh, changing rooms at uh, a big uh, kind of a public facility at Long Beach. And uh, there was one man who fought this, uh, one of the 31, um, at least one committed suicide, mm. uh, at least 25 uh, served time in prison, and then uh, many paid fines. Um, you know, and the time in prison was six months. Uh, mm. This was to me, the most revealing and surprising thing we found, because uh, this there were uh, almost two dozen articles in the LA Times about what they call the social vagrant scandal. Uh, social vagrancy was part of the penal code under the vagrancy section. And there was such an aversion to saying homosexuality that um, uh, they, they were arrested on this on this particular technicality, and that one man actually fought the system, hired lawyers, uh, went on trial, and prevailed. He got an acquittal. Mm. Uh, that was an astonishing revelation, because the men in the Mattachine Society, 45 years later, who mm -hmm. uh, uh, did the same thing in, in a trial when one of their members was entrapped at Dale Jennings, they thought they had had the first victory. There was so much enforced uh, suppression of information and knowledge that uh, it really taught the lesson that gay people had to uh, invent uh, legal strategies and, and even at a basic rights agenda over and over again, even if there had been some precedent for uh, uh, what had happened before. Was this, was this a rich guy that could hire a lawyer or something? Well, he was a, he was a successful florist. He wasn't that rich, but mm -hmm. he was a florist who was successful, and, and he had, uh, he may well, have, there are things that we'll never know. Uh, it, it's not impossible, and it's somewhat probable, that there were gay friends behind him. He, was, he and the others who were arrested were accused of being in uh, something called the... Uh, 606 Club or the 96 Club, which were kind of uh, interchangeable terms, and it was a reference to 69. And there were these lurid accounts in the LA Times and even up in the Sacramento Bee that 
together and put on kimonos and powdered wigs and have sex listening to a ragtime piano. And uh, But there was certainly, uh, clearly, a widespread uh, community of gay men that knew each other that at least had friendships and probably had some sort of sexual network as well. And uh, that, this, that there was this level of social organization going on, uh, as well as this uh, ability to uh, um, face the authorities and take them on, that, that was really something. How do you think he convinced the jury? His lawyers were able to uh, very clearly, and, and their, their arguments are recorded in, uh, in the newspapers, um, they uh, appealed to the jury on the basis that the men who had arrested their client were themselves the criminals, that they had created a crime when none had existed, that uh, th these, these two guys were really bounty hunters who were given mm -hmm. uh, badges temporarily and given authority by the Long Beach Police Department. There's a strong likelihood that they had done the same thing in Los Angeles the previous year, netting 50 arrests, although there's a brief mention of that in a, in a file, not even, uh, there were no articles about it at all. And um, the, the men were so cynical and conniving that the two would work in uh, changing rooms at the beach and at bathrooms where there were uh, glory holes drilled in, uh, into stalls. They would, uh, one would put his mouth up to a hole, <laughs> wave at people, get them to expose themselves and come through the hole and then they would stamp their victims with indelible ink with their special mark. It was absolutely horrifying. It was uh, the most rank form of entrapment uh, one can imagine. And then they would haul the victims off to the police station and say, uh, look, look, we, we got a pervert. <laughs> Well, How else would we have he would he have our mark? They went uh, they went working for the police. They were hired by the uh, Long Beach Police Department. Oh, they were okay. They were hired as bounty hunters, and they would get uh, ten dollars a head per arrest. Hmm. So uh, they boasted <laughs> of making up to uh, you know fifteen arrests today uh, a day, and to earn hundred and fifty dollars a day in nineteen sixteen was was incredible, you know, that was, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and they and they, uh, they boasted in the paper that they were hoping to offer their services in San Francisco and Portland and half a dozen other big cities. Uh -huh. So, and there were a lot of those kinds of purity sweeps that were going on. Right, 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 yeah. But the, um, were there any precursors of these, of the religious right uh, that we know about today? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Los Angeles went through a fascinating transformation of being really a Wild West town. It was so lawless. Uh, you know, for, for better and for worse, prostitution was legal. Uh, there was an attitude of this was the wild frontier and people could do what they wanted and, and as they wanted. Um, and there were also a horrendous amount of murders. At one, one record I read from about the 1870s, so there was about a murder a day. Hmm. And there was hardly any police force. They had just a few uh, rangers. That, because L.A. has always been so geographically vast, it's always been the, the particular challenge of law enforcement. And that way I, I feel for law enforcement down here. 
to try to to understand what's going on, let alone keep some sort of control of enforcing law. But um, the uh, uh, the law enforcement uh, was uh, got a huge boost because in about um, uh, the 1880s through the 90s, uh, the temperance movement began to uh, exert a lot of force, the anti-drinking movement. That was uh, very closely tied in with the idea of uh, taming sexuality. Uh, uh, literature from um, temperance people often would say that uh, all men were uh, potentially drunken uh, sexual abusers uh, and that liquor was always involved in cases of rape. And, uh, you know, that's not entirely untrue, but nevertheless there was a, a real confluence of uh, uh, the uh, women's suffrage movement, a movement to empower and protect women, uh, the anti-alcohol movement, and the emergence of more and more churches as the, as the Wild West uh, uh, began to settle down and the, uh, the city began to grow enormously when the railroads came through in the 1880s. Uh, the, L.A. turned from being, uh, one person said, a, uh, a city of 100 saloons and no churches to a city of 100 churches and no saloons. During this so-called social vagrant scandal of 1916, there were there was a right-wing religious press in New, in LA. Several uh, newspapers that expressed a religious point of view, and uh, they were just filled with righteous indignation about how Los Angeles was becoming uh, a new Gomorrah, and um, they uh, uh, they were very very uh, uh, forceful in. The legal attack and the social attack against uh, anything to do with a, a sort of a free sexuality. There had actually been an event in the 1890s, uh, a big sort of Mardi Gras in L.A., where there was a the last night of it was a true Mardi Gras with people in costume, and there was so much cross-dressing going on. <laughs> and the suggestion there were there were women who would dress as men and go into saloons and smoke cigars and drink and probably many of them were lesbians. And there were many men who would get up in women's uh, dress and were accused of unspeakably vile acts while in drag. Hmm. That uh, cross-dressing was outlawed in 1899 by the L.A. City Council. They referred to it as masquerading. And again, the right, the religious right of the early days was 100% behind that. So... Yeah, there's a lot of examples of that. You mentioned you mentioned earlier the uh, social uh, social vagrancy as uh, issue. Yes. Um, and did you um, did you find out if that was used only during a particular period, and then they use uh, sodomy statutes or oral sex statutes instead? Or oh well, the social vagrancy scandal actually triggered a change in the law in the state of California. Uh, the um, uh, social vagrancy was a misdemeanor, and there was uh, so much outrage caused by um, uh, the 
uh, way in which uh, these men could not be prosecuted for anything worse. Sodomy, anal sex, was a felony. Oral sex was uh, uh, not necessarily against the law. And then the uh, social vagrancy technicality really was a technicality. So in 1916, uh, directly as a result of what happened with the scandal in Los Angeles, there was a law passed to turn uh, uh, oral sex into a felony. And um, then thousands and thousands of men were arrested on, on uh, that statute uh, up through the uh, early 70s, about 1976, when uh, the Willie Brown Consenting Adults Bill went into effect and made consenting sex between adults in private uh, a, um, uh, a, a matter outside the law. Uh, what was the normal sentence, uh, or the average sentence? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's hard to be sure of averages. Very often, you would see uh, a sentence of 25 years given. Wow. Uh, like today, it wasn't always a 25-year sentence, sir. Sometimes it was only 10 years. Uh, sometimes I've seen a sentence of, uh, you know, two years. Uh, but still, two years was remarkable, uh, you know, to go to prison for... for uh, and and, and uh, it was always state prison. It was uh, San Quentin or Folsom. So um, uh, it was taking, you know, men who were uh, just unlucky and uh, often were, you know, contributing members of society and really turning them into to life criminals. Also, there were, the, the, the fines were very high. Uh, there was a register of fines in one LA Times article that I noticed where men accused of drunkenness or uh, various other kind of social vice infractions were fined maybe $7 or $10, and a man accused of crime against nature was fined uh, $1,500. Was, was there a distinction made uh, at the time uh, if it was um, sex with a teenager? Was, that, um, was there a distinction made, or was it all lumped together? Uh, no, the distinction was sometimes made, and it raises a very interesting question. Uh, there are um, uh, there was a historical association, with, which I believe actually still persists today, that uh, homosexuality and uh, child molestation are really kind of from the same place and should have the same punishment and association and categorization under the law. In fact, uh, child abuse, uh, you know, actually having sex with a, uh, you know, four-year-old or so is uh, Section 288 in the California Penal Code. The oral sex felony statute that I mentioned a minute ago that was introduced in 1916, that was uh, labeled as 288A. So the connotation that these two crimes were, were sort of, or these two acts were similar in criminal nature is, is right there in the way that it was placed uh, by the, uh, the lawmakers. And it's, it's a very interesting um, and, and sad history and one we won't know uh, ever too much about um, because these records were not kept and so many of them are still unavailable. But there was a definite uh, uh, truth at the turn of the century that uh, 
child prostitution for heterosexuality was, was widespread. These kids were often known as street Arabs, as a term from New York, for children who often were homeless. And this is one of the, it was what we would call today survival sex. Uh, there's indications that newsboys and shoeshine boys would often, who were often also homeless, uh, uh, you know, go into prostitution on their own in order to survive. And um, uh, there is one story, one statistic I read in a, in a history of uh, kind of um, socially progressive homes. There was a, ho a, a, a home created for newsboys and shoeshine boys that were homeless. And most of them left after coming in voluntarily. They left voluntarily. So there was an indication that there were uh, you know, young people who actually preferred the wildlife on the street. And again, it's just a very, very different time. The age of marriage was very, very low. In some cases, it was 14 mm -hmm. in the U.S. But any time there could be a, uh, um, a, a, an allegation made that a, a man had brutalized a boy, that's something you do find very often. And it's hard to know when there was some... Uh, genuine uh, force used, or when uh, it was a consensual act, but the younger partner was, as they say on the, on the crime shows, flipped to testify, pressured by the DA. And there are a couple of cases where I found that seems to have been inevitable, that the two were originally charged, and often with a 17-year-old and a 25-year-old, you know, um, and the younger person suddenly becomes a child and a victim. Mm. Uh, in exchange for testimony. Was, was the age of consent uh, different then, or was it the same as in, now? Uh, that's a good question, and one I, I can't attest to. Uh, I know that uh, it, it, it had to have been at least 18, because I've seen two cases in which uh, adolescents of um, 17 were called children, as, as they would be today. I don't know whether the age of consent was 18 or, or 21. You, uh, in your book on uh, Harry Hay, you covered his uh, support for this uh, group that was fighting against the age of consent, or trying to lower it, uh, NAMBLA. Mm -hmm. And you didn't cover NAMBLA at all, even though it had a, uh, a kind of a active life in L.A. Uh, why was that? Well, there was too much to cover in many, many, many instances. Los Angeles. I mean, this book is really a sampling of gay and lesbian life. We didn't cover nearly as much transgender history as I would have liked to have, and hardly any bisexual history, which is yeah. uh, extremely hard to find. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, you know, in, in, if I could mention one thing on the NAMBLA issue, because it came, it came up uh, and it's been used uh, by the right wing just recently, uh, on a national kind of, you know, uh, blogosphere uh, propaganda level. Um, mm. Harry Hay, it, th this came up when, when Nancy Pelosi, uh, before the last election, when it was clear that Nancy Pelosi would be the speaker, uh, there are a whole lot of uh, bloggers from the uh, radical right, and you can find all this stuff on the net, yeah. uh, who said that if, uh, if Nancy Pelosi wins, she has the values of Harry Hay, who was uh, who advocated having sex with little boys, and that's completely false. Harry Hay 
advocated that uh, young gay men, often who are still uh, uh, adolescents and are below the age of consent, <coughs> do have sexual uh, interests and questions, and uh, and often real, uh, uh, you know, heartache over uh, the lack of information, uh, and and have uh, real yeah. emotional distress over it, and that the the ability for uh, uh, well-adjusted gay men who have had some experience in life to somehow mentor, at least emotionally, and in some cases possibly sexually, uh, younger men, uh, was something that he believed had saved his life mm -hmm. in the uh, 1920s when he was, uh, you know, six foot tall, 14-year-old uh, who reached out sexually and was glad he was able to find uh, uh, so he did not, he, he was in a relationship for 40 years uh, with uh, the man that he died with. Mm -hmm. uh, he'd been in, in several relationships before that with, uh, with contemporary men who were uh, in his own age group. He was never involved as an adult with, uh, uh, with uh, you know, little boys, as Republicans have been saying. So I appreciate being able to set the record somewhat a little more clear on that. Well, why would they tie that to Pelosi? Well, Hay lived for the last three or four years of his life in San Francisco, and he was uh, elected by the people of San Francisco as a grand marshal. Oh yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Because he had uh, moved up there, and because he had, you know, he is credited as the founder of the gay movement in the United States. Because he was, or, and Nancy Pelosi was in the same parade. I don't think they ever even saw one another. <laughs> but uh, she failed to denounce him. Mm. And so the right wing was just furiously spinning, trying to, to smear her with whatever they could. And they took the most sensational thing possible. Right, right. Was there any um, hint of a Catholic scandal in, in the history? Catholic scandal. Catholic, uh, <laughs> you know, sex, sex, uh, so-called sure, sex abuse. Yeah. Uh, well, once again, we um, we couldn't delve into things that would have required intensive investigations that would have taken us off on uh, uh, worthwhile, but um, uh, in investigative jags that, that we just didn't have the time yeah. for. So. So I don't know. Um, I know that you know. In recent years, Los Angeles has been the subject of I think at least 500 suits, and they've only settled yeah. you know, uh, 90 of them or something recently. So, yes, we have everything here in Los Angeles. <laughs> how do you define? Um, I was curious how you define Los Angeles. Very good question. Um, <laughs> Since I live outside Los Angeles, and a lot of people think I, I you know, people north of me always think I'm in Los Angeles. Well, because L.A. is uh, one of the biggest cities in the world geographically, it's over 400 square miles, uh, and because it encompasses all of these other things that have the word city after them, like Century City and Studio City, and, you know, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of these little named places and towns that are, oh, oh yeah, that's Los Angeles. The Valley is Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. uh, San Pedro is Los Angeles. Uh, so we we use 
that geographical definition, we also used the environs of Southern California. We mentioned a little bit uh, about uh, Long Beach, which is its own city, but uh, was really an adjunct. And gay life gives itself to a certain level of sort of uh, circuit travel, where people will go off for a weekend to someplace or other. And so we uh, we talked a bit about uh, you know Palm Springs. Long Beach, the South Beach cities, uh, and um, and so on. It was an um, ACLU case that you mentioned that you said was in Los Angeles, but it was actually in Orange County. <laughs> oh, the <laughs> Vietnamese high school girl? Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, well, you know, Los Angeles uh, uh, and Southern California, you know, have a have a certain um, <laughs> compatibility, and I believe it was a local ACLU office that uh, worked with her. I think it was. Oh yeah, the all the cases come with the the ACLU will not let. Uh, <laughs> I mean, basically, they're pretty proprietary about. Um, I mean, the Orange County office. They just started another office, but in the pa in the recent past, they've been um, quite uh, imperialistic, I guess, that you cannot. You know, say that you speak for the ACLU. If you're in Orange County, you have to be part of the Southern California ACLU. Right. I know. I yeah. actually I used to work there, so I saw right. well that close up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One time I testified at a, I was part of the OC chapter, I guess, mm -hmm. of the ACLU or the whatever, and um, I talked and and said you know something about ACLU, and they I got a call the next morning from the vice president or somebody. <laughs> saying that I can't speak for the ACLU, they have to speak for it. Yeah, so, yeah, so no they, doubt. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but they recently did have a start a new office down here, so they do have some lawyers here. Good uh, official office. Good, yeah. and I think you know also, Dan. There's a spirit of Southern California that ranges about a bit, and it and the influence of uh, uh, the whole you know sunny Western idealistic climate that we have. Uh, mm. you know, um, uh, you know, in, in terms of the spirit of things as well as the actual weather, uh, that's something that can't be denied. And also the uh, uh, the influence of the film industry. And it's been a real delight to have a such a long interview with someone who never once asked a question about Hollywood because it's it's a minor part. It's it's what most people immediately focus on. But, well, I was going to uh, ask it just now. <laughs> oh, okay, go no, ahead. But the question is, why so few people come out? Uh, well, well they're, um, they're main, they're, you know, famous stars, why? I mean, now maybe, is it, is it changed much now? Well, even since the book came out, there have been two major TV actors who have come out, one currently working on a show called Grey's Anatomy, uh, T.R. Knight, and another guy who's got another show who was uh, uh, Doogie Howser back in the year. Oh, right, I remember him. Um, I, I talked to him once, and I always thought he was gay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, you have to, you know, t two important things are this is a an industry built on image uh -huh. and the image always has to be versatile. Uh, you know, one goes from being the leading man to the character actor uh very quickly and um one doesn't actors have uh, a reasonable interest in limiting the public conception of themselves. The only thing that they make money off of is seeming sexy to as many people as possible. And, uh, uh, you know, being a viable sex fantasy. And the other thing is that they are, they're actors. You know, they act. Uh, they pretend for a living. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, uh, uh, you, you often see the sort of 
shocking revelation stories about when someone is discovered to be uh, you know, an alcoholic or have been abused as a kid, and they come out with this information because they've been so pretty and glittery. Um, so I'm, I'm personally uh, aware, uh, you know, I'm personally somewhat sympathetic with, with actors. They're, you know, actors are not moral arbiters. I, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. uh, I'm concerned that more uh, uh, elected officials don't come out. We just have the first mm -hmm. openly gay city council person ever to have been elected just a couple of years ago, Bill Rosendahl in Los Angeles. Jackie Goldberg was in office when she had to come out, and uh, um, Joel Wax never came out until just around the time he was leaving office. Hmm. So, um, yeah. yeah. You know, there's one last thing I wanted to mention is that uh, in, in the overview of this, while this book is a, a history of, of gays and lesbians, our subtitle says A History of Sexual Outlaws, Power Politics, and Lipstick Lesbians, it's also a history of the city of Los Angeles from a fascinating and untold point of view. Uh, there is so much in this book about the development of the city, the law enforcement system, right. the fact that the uh, Rampart Police Station, which was known for the horrifying scandals uh, just uh, about 10 years ago uh, in terms of you know beating and robbing and framing people of color, was also the precinct that... Uh, was involved with some of the worst raids on gay bars that were incredibly bloody and violent going back uh, nearly 40 years. So there's there's some real uh, city history that is, uh, I think, of interest to any reader and anyone who's interested in Southern California. Uh, I thought the, the your coverage of Asian Americans was a little bit skimpy. Yes, uh, it, it certainly was. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> we we were we were really grateful that uh, there there is a a book on the uh, making of the uh, uh, Asian community uh, the gay Asian community in L.A. Uh, Eric Watts book right. uh, which we which we drew on um, we tried to in order to have a history of people of color who were lesbian and gay. Uh, we would have had to have a three-volume set. Uh, there was there was an enormous amount of uh, frustration we felt in terms of the the choices we had to make. But we tried to uh, include at least a, a flavor of uh, uh, showing what Los Angeles, what gay Los Angeles was like through uh, different people's uh, perspectives. You know, there's a guy. Uh, Tak Yamamoto, who we yeah. interviewed, who who described really beautifully how the uh, uh, the issue of racism in gay West Hollywood turned. How, at a certain point in the '60s, as a little gay community, it was so small, everyone was not just included but needed. And at a certain point in the '70s, it started to uh, have such success that they were able to market themselves as. Uh, the sort of the blonde beach boy paradise, and and then uh, this racial profiling started at discos that we talked about. So, mm -hmm. so we did the best we could, and you know, like like all sort of first books, this is now begging for uh, a new generation of retro <laughs> scholars to come <laughs> in and and really expand things. And there's actually a lot of uh, people doing gay research now, okay, historical research. 
Yeah, well, I, uh, I certainly hope so. It's, uh, it's a very exciting field. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to end with a song from uh, Tom Robinson, uh, Glad to be Gay. Oh, great. He performed once at UCLA. I remember when he came to town. Oh, wow. Uh, what year was that? Oh, it must have been around 82. Oh, uh-huh. Maybe yeah, I saw him in, uh, what, when was the March on Washington? 79, the March on Washington? Right. Yeah, yeah that was the first one. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, I was there, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, well thank, thank you, you Stuart uh, Timmons, uh, author of, uh, co-author of uh, Gay L.A., uh, and who publishes the book? It's from Basic Books in New York. It's uh, it's uh, at bookstores everywhere, and it's at uh, Amazon.com as well. Uh, thank you very much. This is Sebastian here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Mm-hmm.